Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The Equal Rights Amendment was introduced for the first time just over 100 years ago. From 1923 on, it was introduced every year until it passed Congress in 1972 and was sent to the states for ratification. As passed by Congress, it reads, Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The ERA was quickly ratified by a handful of states, and then things got interesting. Spoiler alert, the ERA is not yet part of the U.S. Constitution, but it's also not entirely dead. Maybe. This hour, 100 years of the ERA. With me is Karen Kodrowski, professor of political science and director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center at Iowa State University. Karen, welcome. Hi, Charity. Thank you for that great introduction. And I think you said it all, right? We don't even need to have the show. <laughs> oh, I think there's a little <laughs> bit more to the story. And uh, we are going to talk about the ERA now and what might happen with the ERA in the future, but we're going to save that for a little later on. Let's start back in 1923. Of course, we know that the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote in this country, became part of the Constitution in 1920. So introducing the Equal Rights Amendment in 1923, was that did that just naturally follow, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> well, in the minds of uh, some suffragists, yes. So, you know, suffragists after the 19th Amendment was ratified needed to figure out what they were going to do next, right? Uh, so Lucy Burns, for example, who was, um, you know, prominent in the National Women's Party, retired. Uh, Carrie Chapman Catt became active in the peace movement and uh, spent another 20 years advocating for peace. Um, and Alice Paul, who was the leader of the second largest national women's suffrage organization called the National Women's Party, um, turned her attention to the Equal Rights Amendment. So she saw sort of the natural segue from, you know, ensuring women's right to political participation through voting to ensuring that women had access to public life in all of its guises through employment and through marriage protections and things along those lines. So, yes, she um, introduced the, the ERA with slightly different language. The current language was adopted in 1943, but Alice Paul, who died in 1977, devoted the rest of her long life to advocating for the Equal Rights Amendment. And obviously, it was not without controversy. And it was not without controversy even, even among the women who fought for the right to vote. Exactly. Yeah. There was actually um, a, a real split among feminists as to whether legal equality, meaning sameness, was the way to go. So, you know, Alice Paul believed that simply breaking down all legal distinctions between men and women would help ensure that women had uh, full equal rights. Um, social feminists like Jane Addams and Eleanor Roosevelt and Carrie Chapman Catt actually opposed the Equal Rights Amendment because many of these uh, social feminists were progressive era reformers and they had worked very hard to implement reforms that they thought would better the lives of women who were working. So this included things like 
uh, maximum hours, um, overtime restrictions, lifting restrictions, mandatory break time, minimum wage. Uh, So a lot of things that we now assume are available to all workers actually were reforms that were put in place for women in industrial settings. And that also meant that the labor unions who had, you know, especially labor unions uh, for women, like the Ladies' Garment Worker Union, um, worked with these social feminists to get these reforms passed. So that set up labor unions as a very key opponent to the Equal Rights Amendment, even if they were on the, you know, quote-unquote, you know, progressive side of so many other issues. So there was a real progressive strain that thought that um, the Equal Rights Amendment was a really bad idea because it would uh, deprive women of these important protections in the workplace, which was often very dangerous. And and it it probably would have changed. Uh, It it absolutely would have. (laughs) And and Alice Paul recognized as such. And her counter argument was essentially like, well, the the legal equality would put women in positions of power to be able to enact other kinds of laws that would be benefit to them. So she saw the notion of legal equality as outweighing, you know, the the price of losing some of these sex-specific worker protections. So this went on for for many years. I mean, we were just sort of locked in that struggle for a long time. What changed that (laughs) actually allowed Congress to pass it? That's a great question. So interestingly enough, business interests, so corporations and business interests actually partnered with Alice Paul and a number of professional organizations like business and professional women, um, like uh, women doctors and so forth, favored the Equal Rights Amendment. But business interests really liked it because they realized that these specific worker protections, which actually made women workers more expensive, right? If you have to pay them a minimum wage and they have to go home at a certain time, they don't work as many hours, um, that those would be gone. And they liked that lack of regulation. Um, So the Equal Rights Amendment really stayed bottled up uh, in Congress in the House of Representatives, which was dominated by Democrats uh, from the 1940s to the 1990s uh, because of the labor union opposition. But, you know, in the 1960s and the 1970s, we see that the women's rights movement, you know, the so-called second wave gets started. There's this flurry of activity related to, um, you know, reducing forms of discrimination against women and so forth. And there was a woman member of Congress, a Democrat from Michigan named Martha Griffiths, who in 1970 Uh, was frustrated by the fact that the chair of the Judiciary Committee, another Democrat, Emanuel Seller from New York, would simply not bring the ERA up to um, committee hearings, much less a vote. So she circulated something called a discharge petition. A discharge petition is a way to bring an item to the floor of the House of Representatives for a vote without going through the committee process. And it requires a majority of the House members to sign their names saying that they want to do this. So she collected 218 signatures of people who were willing to anger or annoy, at least, a very powerful committee chair in the House of Representatives. And so she was able to bring the ERA 
to the floor of the House for a vote in 1971, and it passed. The uh, Senate, however, did not um, take any action in 1970 and 1971. So in 1972, Emanuel Seller backed down and said, okay, I will allow hearings to be held and we'll bring the ERA up through uh, the usual process. And then in the same year, the Senate voted and the ERA was passed in March of 1972. All right. And it passed in 1972. And there was all of this momentum right at the start, yes, right? exactly. So um, states were like stumbling over themselves. State legislatures were to try and... And, um, and before it, before we talk about that, I, I should make clear, because a lot of us don't really actually understand how we <laughs> pass <laughs> amendments the to the Constitution. Right. So what what did the states have to do? Yeah. So um, th- there, there are um, a couple of different ways to amend the Constitution, but the one that's been used in almost every instance is that Congress passes a constitutional amendment. Each uh, House of Congress has to pass it by a two-thirds majority. And then three-fourths or you know, of the states, 75% of the states, which is 38, have to pass um, to ratify the amendment. And that is usually done by state legislatures. So we had state legislatures legislatures that, um, you know, needed to bring this up as part of their state legislative business. So the first state to ratify was Hawaii, which was 20 minutes after the Senate floor vote. So literally, they had somebody on the phone with, you know, legislative leaders in Hawaii waiting for the vote. And then, you know, the staffer communicated like, it's done. And then Hawaii suspended the rules, brought up the ERA, and became the first state to ratify. Um, Nebraska was rushing to become one of the early states. They lost to Hawaii, but they decided to settle for being second. Um, And Iowa was fourth. Um, And all in all, in in, in, in 1970, 20 states out of the 38 that were needed had ratified by December of 1970. So it was just, or excuse me, 1972. So it was just this huge momentum to um, move the ERA forward and to add it to the Constitution. Okay. And then that momentum stalled. What happened? Yeah, and then what? Right. Yeah. So um, momentum starts to slow in 1973 um, when only seven more states had ratified. And what happened was that Phyllis Schlafly, who first... um, articulated her concerns about the Equal Rights Amendment in her publication, The Phyllis Schlafly Report, in uh, February of 1972, um, organized um, a national group in St. Louis. Remember, she was from Alton, Illinois, which is in the larger St. Louis metro area. Um, So she organized this in uh, St. Louis, and this group became known as Stop ERA. And STOP was an acronym for Stop Taking Our Privileges. And she managed to harness um, a lot of fears that um, housewives and conservative women had about the Equal Rights Amendment. And she organized a very, very successful grassroots movement nationwide that um, was was successful in challenging the ERA in state after state after state. It was particularly strong in the Midwest. 
And we even saw states that had ratified the amendment go through a rescission process, remove their ratification. And we, we are going to take a short break. We'll talk more about what happened in 1973 and beyond that stalled out the ERA. And we'll talk about the possible future of the ERA as well. With me today is Karen Kadrowski, professor of political science and director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center at Iowa State University. The Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced just over 100 years ago. In 1923, it was passed by Congress in 1972. It is not part of our U.S. Constitution. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about the 100 years of the Equal Rights Amendment in the United States. It was first introduced in 1923. It was introduced every year until it passed Congress in 1972, and then it was sent to the states for ratification. As it was passed in 1972, it reads, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The ERA, as we were just learning, was quickly ratified by a number of states, 20 states in 1972, seven more in 1973, and then things stalled out. To become part of the Constitution. 38 states needed to ratify the ERA. It is not yet part of the U.S. Constitution, but it may not be entirely dead either. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Walking us through this history is Karen Kodrowski, professor of political science and director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center at Iowa State University. And we were talking just before the break about how momentum stalled because of Phyllis Schla- Schlafly, who introduced her group, Stop ERA. Stop was an acronym for Stop Taking Our Privileges. And she became a huge force in the 1970s. Tell me just a little bit more about this cultural debate. Yeah, that yeah, and Phyllis Schlafly had a you know national reputation as a Republican activist. She had actually run for Congress, and she was considered an expert on uh, defense policy and nuclear weapons. Um, but where she really made her biggest mark was in the opposition to the ERA, and what she really capitalized on was, I think, a great deal of fear and uncertainty on the part of women who had entered into a certain kind of social contract with their husbands, right? Um, They might have ended their educations very early, never entered the workforce, had no skills and no work experience, but they, um, you know, desired to be homemakers and take care of the home and family with the understanding that their husbands would take care of them. 
And so as part of all this upheaval, they believed that um, second wave feminists were trivializing their choices and their contributions to the, um, the, the nation and society as though, you know, raising children was less important than having a career and striving to do, you know, uh, achieve in the professional world. They also worried about things like divorce reform, which was getting rid of alimony, which they worried would leave them destitute um, if their uh, husbands left them. There were also reforms to child custody laws where there was no longer preference that children be placed with the mother um, in cases of divorce. So, you know, they really um, successfully capitalized upon, you know, these concerns that there would be women who would be actually harmed by the Equal Rights Amendment, um, rightly or wrongly, um, and that they ascribed a lot of the, you know, changes that were happening in society to things that uh, were related to the feminist movement or would be exacerbated with the um, Equal Rights Amendment. And then, of course, in 1973, the Supreme Court um, issued its ruling in Roe versus Wade. And so in the minds of ERA opponents, um, uh, and Phyllis Schlafly, notably, was a very devout Catholic and a mother of six, uh, she managed to uh, bring in anti-abortion forces by tying the Equal Rights Amendment to abortion and saying that if the ERA was um, added to the Constitution, that it would make, you know, codify Roe versus Wade and there would be no hope of overturning it. Um, there were a number of other concerns that women would be drafted, that women would be placed in combat positions, that this would uh, harm uh, military readiness, that there would be gay marriage, there'd be unisex restrooms, prisons, gyms, and locker rooms, um, that sexual predators would be waiting in these facilities to assault uh, children or young women, um, and that, and that um, gays and lesbians would be allowed to teach in school, um, and that all rape laws would be uh, repealed. This was where I bugged the arguments. So... We mentioned already that Iowa was the fourth state to ratify the ERA. And after that happened in 1972, then that became somewhat controversial. There was a rescission attempt in 1977 that failed. And then in 1979, there was a campaign that started to pass an ERA for the state of Iowa that would be part of the state constitution. So that really brought the debate here. Exactly. Um, and it's worth noting that the first state to rescind its ratification of the federal ERA was neighboring Nebraska in 1973. And, and they were 34... the second state to ratify. So <laughs> yes, and they were the second state to ratify, right? So talk about buyer's remorse, I guess. And then, um, you know, after, after that, um, 34 out of the 35 states that rescind, that uh, ratified the ERA actually also had rescission attempts. So again, this was really a national force. But in 1980, um, the opposition to, uh, or the rescission attempt sort of turned into a debate about the state ERA and that the ERA uh, uh, supporters in Iowa believed that if the ERA was not going to be ratified to the national um constitution, that having some sort of state-level protection was important. So they proposed um, a rather simple amendment um, 
first of all, that instead of reading all men are by nature free and equal, et cetera, the Constitution would add the words and women. And then the enforcement clause was neither the state nor any of its subdivisions shall, on the basis of gender, deny or restrict the equality of rights under the law. And even though this had an initially a fair amount of support in public opinion in Iowa, uh, both sides brought in national celebrities, including Phyllis Schlafly, who didn't have to travel that far to get to Iowa and traveled all over the state um, and debated um, leading Iowa women such as um, Peg Anderson, uh, who was leading the pro-ERA forces. And the arguments that were made really echoed those as, as if they were arguing about the federal amendment. So, you know, in debates that I watched, you know, recorded debates that I watched, Phyllis Schlafly would say, well, the ZRA is so terrible because, you know, women would be drafted into the, you know, military and we were talking about a state ERA where there is no standing army. There's a National Guard, which is a volunteer force, right? So there was a lot of confusion. But again, it was very successful in sort of dredging up these fears. And in the end, um, when the uh, state amendment came up for a popular vote in 1980, it failed. And speaking of those debates, we do have some audio from one that took place at the University of Iowa in 1979. This is Phyllis Schlafly, the leader of the Stop ERA movement, debating the issue with Karen DeCrow, the former president of the National Organization for Women. And Karen DeCrow speaks first here. We do not have all the equality we need in the employment world. Opponents of the Equal Rights Amendment will tell you that women have all the protection we need and that there is economic inequality to women because we do different kinds of jobs and are in the job market for a different length of time. That is absolutely not true. ERA will not raise the pay of women. If your pay is $800 a month, it is not going to raise it to $1,000. ERA is not going to give you a promotion. ERA will do absolutely nothing for women in the field of employment. There's no way it can extend the effect of the Equal Employment Opportunity Act of 1972. ERA will not make ex-husbands make their support payments or their alimony payments. ERA will not force your husband to do the diapers and the dishes. ERA does not do any of these things. Again, that's some audio from a debate that took place in 1979 between Phyllis Schlafly, leader of the Stop ERA movement, and Karen DeCrow, former president of the National Organization for Women at the University of Iowa. So, uh, Karen, uh, I, I am talking with Karen Kodrowski, by the way, <laughs> not Karen DeCrow, Karen Kodrowski, political scientist at Iowa State University. And Karen, so 1980, the state ERA in Iowa failed. There yes. were attempts yeah. again in 1989 yeah. and 1992, yeah. right? Exactly. So in 19, 1992, um, the same Equal Rights Amendment, um, same language that was used in 1980 came forward again in 1992. And in 1992, Iowa was the only state that had an Equal Rights Amendment um, 
up for uh, ratification by popular vote anywhere in the country. So again, what we saw was that there were huge amounts of money that poured into Iowa from outside organizations. So for example, the Fund for the Feminist Majority, which is based in California, came and set up its own pro-ERA organization that operated in parallel with the grassroots ERA organization here in Iowa. And Phyllis Schlafly, again, came and uh, spoke all over the the state. And um, she um, or her group, which was now called the Eagle Forum, put in something like $80,000, ran TV ads that showed men kissing and all sorts of other scary things. And Pat Robertson's conservative coalition was also actively involved. And of course, this was just a few years after Pat Robertson had come in second in the Iowa caucuses in 1988. So he was very well known. So um, it was an extremely expensive race. Again, at the beginning of the debate period, public opinion was firmly in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment by 10 points. And um, by the time the votes were counted, the ERA lost by four points, although it did have significantly more support from women than it did from men, it still lost. Then in 1998, Iowa did something else. and this Did it again. Right, right. So right. The, but not the, exactly the same this time. Not exactly the same. So in 1998, Manette Doderer, who was um, in the, then in the Iowa House of Representatives um, and, and just one of the most ardent champions of women's rights in the Iowa legislature uh, proposed a, an amendment for the third time. But this time they dropped the enforcement mechanism. So the amendment that was proposed was literally two words long, right? Be it resolved that men and women are free and equal and have un- certain unalienable rights, etc. But the enforcement mechanism was gone. So this passed overwhelmingly through the state legislature in the two sessions that was um, uh, that it was required before it would go to a vote bef- uh, a vote of before the voters. Um, there was no organized opposition to it. Both political parties and Governor Branstead um, endorsed it, and um, it was completely uncontroversial and passed in 1998. And it has not been tested in courts the way that one might expect an equal rights amendment to be tested. Exactly. So in the gay rights uh, or gay marriage uh, case, the Varnum decision, it was not it was not cited by the courts and it wasn't in any of the abortion decisions. The one that said that the Constitution protected an abortion right and the one that overturned it by the state courts, none of them have used this clause as justification for um, their decision. All right, let's move forward to present day. We we talked about the fact that when the ERA was passed in 1972, it needed 38 states to ratify it to become part of the U.S. Constitution. Things stalled out after 27 states. However, now, where do things stand? Well, in 1992, also, uh, 
another constitutional amendment was added to the Constitution, one that deals with congressional pay. And the remarkable thing about this is that um, the amendment was proposed as part of the original Bill of Rights in 1789. And the period of time that it took for ratification was 203 years. And there's a very interesting story related to that. Um, But what this did was inspired uh, three law students to publish in a journal that's put out by the William and Mary College of Law to argue that the Equal Rights Amendment is still before the states and could still be ratified. Because it was thought that there was a a time limit. Yes, there was a time limit that was attached to the Equal Rights Amendment in the um, accompanying resolution, but it's not in the body of the amendment. So these scholars argued that since the fifth, uh, since um, Section 5 of the Constitution, which deals with amendments, doesn't say anything about time limits. The success of the 27th Amendment after 203 years implies that there is no time limit for a constitutional amendment. And therefore, the time limit that was attached to the ERA is a moot point. And that with just three more states, because by 1977, 35 states had ratified, with just three more states, the um, ERA could be added to the Constitution. You call this kind of a a zombie amendment. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, tell me why. Right. Because, um, you know, part of this is that um, embedded in this uh, conversation is that um, the rescissions are illegal. Right. Um, and that the, the courts would, or Congress would have to declare that the um, that the time limit is has been removed from the resolution or is a moot point. The courts have not ruled on on that particular issue. Um, and moreover, there there have been three states that have ratified. Um, Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia have ratified between 2017 and 2020. And uh, they collectively sued the National Archivist, who's the one who says, yes, we have a new constitutional amendment. Let's put it in um, to add the constitutional uh, to add the ERA to the Constitution, and based upon um, advice from the Trump administration's Department of Justice, um, said no. So it's kind of languishing, right? And there are competing congressional resolutions to try and solve this dilemma. Like uh, the Biden administration's Department of Justice came out and said, okay, look, the courts have ruled and we don't believe that the that the ERA is added because the time limit is still in the resolution. But all that Congress has to do is either pass a resolution that rescinds the time limit or pass a resolution that directs the National Archivist to do to add the ERA to the Constitution. So it's really in this legal limbo um, where it's kind of an open question. You know, it could be a fairly simple process to add it if Congress would just pass one of these resolutions. On the other hand, nothing is happening. And um, the legality of these resolutions um, and the time limit and the rescissions are in many minds op- open questions. 
We're going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. With me today is Karen Kodrowski, professor of political science and director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center at Iowa State University. And joining us in just a moment, Bettina Hager, chief of policy and programs with the ERA Coalition and Fund for Women's Equality. We are going to talk about the future of the Equal Rights Amendment in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about the Equal Rights Amendment. It was first introduced in 1923. It was passed by Congress in 1972. And now it has been ratified by the requisite 38 states. But we're still not sure whether it can become part of the U.S. Constitution or not. That is an open question. There are a lot of people who have some very strong feelings about this. Karen Kodrowski is here today, professor of political science and director of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center at Iowa State University. She's been walking us through the history of the ERA. And Bettina Hager is also here now, chief of policy and programs with the ERA Coalition and Fund for Women's Equality. Bettina, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. And I have to say, I've really been enjoying the conversation. I've been able to listen in and, and just being taken back through that, that history by you and Karen has, has kind of set me up for this conversation. All right. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Bettina. And you do not believe that the ERA is dead. Karen just described it kind of as a zombie amendment at the moment. Tell me, tell me where you believe things stand. So we believe that the Equal Rights Amendment is ratified and valid. However, we do understand that it has yet to be published as part of the ERA Constitution, sorry, as part of the Constitution as the 28th Amendment. Um, but, But in our mind, that doesn't at all mean that it is not ratified and valid. Um, and, and we are working in every strategy we can to get it published so that it will be kind of universally recognized as part of the Constitution. From your perspective, what stands in the way? Politics, Um, you know, a conviction. Um, We have all of the arguments, the constitutional arguments that say that this should be part of the Constitution. It should be included as the 28th Amendment. Um, But it's about getting the people who can act to ensure that that happens, to have the conviction to, to do it. Um, and so we, you know, just had a march. You've, you've mentioned it's the 100-year anniversary. We had a march where we declared it's been 100 years, not one more. And we stopped at the White House. Well, we started at the White House, stopped at the Department of Justice, stopped at the archives, and then ended at Congress um, with the effort of saying that we're tired of our equality being treated like a hot potato, everyone else pointing fingers at, at one another. We're holding all of our elected and appointed officials accountable for ensuring that this gets done and we don't have one more year without sex equality explicitly prohibited in the Constitution. And why do you think the ERA is important to add to our Constitution? There have been a lot of things that have happened since 1972 to make equality more of a reality in this country. 
That is absolutely true. And there has been fantastic progress at the legislative level and through, you know, interpretation of the 14th Amendment. However, things that have happened, unfortunately, also include rollbacks. And we're seeing that our rights are increasingly vulnerable, especially by a Supreme Court right now that is even questioning whether or not sex equality should be interpreted as being protected under the 14th Amendment, which they actually did explicitly in the Dobbs decision. I disagree with that interpretation, of course. I think that the 14th Amendment should be used to protect sex discrimination, but I'm unfortunately not on the Supreme Court. Um, So our rights, while we have moved forward, um, are also vulnerable, and we've been seeing them move back. And so I think that, you know, I've been working on this for quite a few years, so of course, me telling you that that we need this is, is not a surprise, but more and more of the public, more and more of, you know, even my colleagues in, in this sphere are understanding the urgent need to have a new tool in the Constitution to ensure that our rights do not go further backward. In fact, that they have an opportunity to move forward. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of number one. But but we even without that argument, there are still so many areas um, that need stronger legal protection, including, you know, protection against sex based violence and discrimination and legislation, um, com- combating discrimination in government employment, um, you know, giving Congress increased power to protect against unequal pay, workplace harassment, pregnancy discrimination, crimes against women, girls in the LGBTQ plus community. And additionally, giving Congress a new basis to protect reproductive health care, post and prenatal care and contraceptives. So, you know, as it stands today, the Equal Rights Amendment will make a definitive difference. But I think especially in light of the rollbacks that we're seeing about the rights that, as you've noted, we've, we've made and the progress that we've made, it is even more urgent than ever. And Karen Kodrowski, as somebody who studies the Constitution, studies constitutional law, um, how do you think the Equal Rights Amendment would change the interpretation of the Constitution and gender equality in this country? Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, immediately, you know, when listening to that clip of Phyllis Schlafly, you know, she she was right in that it would not make an immediate difference. But the most important thing that the Equal Rights Amendment would do would be to um, change the level of scrutiny that courts use when they are um, examining cases of sex discrimination. So currently, the courts use a standard called strict scrutiny um, when looking at instances of discrimination on the basis of sex, religion, or national origin. And that means that um, a, a defendant in a discrimination case has to show a compelling interest to make differences between, you know, distinctions between people of different races, um, national origins or religions, which is almost an impossible standard to meet. Um, sex discrimination, on the other hand, falls into an area called intermediate scrutiny, or it's sometimes referred to as heightened scrutiny, which means that it's actually easier to, um, to defend acts of discrimination on the basis of sex. So constitutionally, um, that means that our courts believe that sex discrimination is less important than racial 
discrimination. And for people who find discrimination abhorrent, um, this, like me, uh, this is really a big deal. Um, you know, and it affects more than half of the population, um, especially since um, a number of administrative actions, a number of court cases have now been defining sex, not just as biological sex, but also sexual orientation and gender identity. So, um, you know, legislation such as Title IX or the Civil Rights Act of 1964 on employment discrimination have been expanded to include, LGBT, you know, discrimination against LGBTQ persons. So because that is under the umbrella of sex, that means that these populations, in addition to all biological females, um, are any discrimination that they experience is still considered to be less important than racial, religious, or national origin discrimination. And Karen, we were just talking about the the legal limbo that the ERA exists in right now. There are some people who say we should just start over. What what would that look like? <laughs> well, um, that would be, I think, politically impossible, right? And Bettina made a, a really great point about politics being the thing that gets in the way. Uh, you need a two-thirds majority to get th- uh, through in both houses of Congress in order to pass this. And now the ERA is a partisan issue. Um, once upon a time, there were both Democrats and Republicans that supported it and both Democrats and Republicans who opposed it. That's no longer the case. So with a tiny Republican majority in the House and a tiny Republican majority in the Senate, it's a far cry from a two-thirds majority. Even if somehow that did happen, um, that would be presupposing that every state that ratified between 1972 and 2020 would ratify again, I think is a very iffy proposition. Uh, For example, the, the politics in Iowa have changed rather profoundly in 50 years from being really a competitive state with kind of a progressive streak to one that is now solidly Republican. So, again, to to explore that legal limbo a little bit further, what what could Congress do if there was a majority in Congress that supported the ERA? Could could Congress just take this issue off the table? Do they have that power? (laughs) Yes, they do. Uh, you want to talk about that, Bettina? I think this is really in oh, your bailiwick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so they do, and actually, they have voted, or the House of Representatives voted two sessions in a row to do just that. We know that now it is a, not a; it is a different majority. Um, we are nonpartisan. We believe the ERA should be nonpartisan, and there are Republican supporters, although not as many as there are in the Democratic Party. But and. The Equal Rights Amendment um, or the legislation to, you know, quote unquote, remove the time limit did pass twice in the House of Representatives. Um, and it had a vote in the Senate this past year that received a bipartisan majority. Um, however, again, politics, um, you have to, in the Senate currently, get a 60 vote um, to to do, to, sorry, move for cloture um, and debate and actually allow it to get to the floor. So it didn't reach that 60 vote threshold, uh, which just, it constantly feels like we're having, you know, the goalposts pushed further and further away. 
Um, but we do have on record a bipartisan majority in the Senate that they do support seeing the uh, Equal Rights Amendment and affirming the Equal Rights Amendment as part of the Constitution. Plus, we have the precedence of the past sessions where Congress has taken action in the House to also pass that legislation. Um, unfortunately, you need to have it in the same session, and we still need to get past that 60-vote cloture goalpost. Um, but there are people who argue, you know, that should be enough. Congress has weighed in. A majority in both houses have said the Equal Rights Amendment and the time limit should not be standing in the way, and they are affirming that the Equal Rights Amendment is part of the Constitution, and many constitutional scholars say we don't even need to do this. It's just an extra thing that Congress is saying, sure, if you're asking us to weigh in, we have the authority to weigh in. We're telling you we're not standing in the way. Um, Except so, they, they yeah. are standing in the way right now. Right. Well, but that's the problem. So, <laughs> that's, right. So, and and I would problem. keep in mind that Senator Schumer has just put out a, a proposed package of, a package of political reforms that actually, remo- um, in, you know, includes removing the filibuster from Senate rules. And mm-hmm. the filibuster has been a, removed from certain Senate procedures, such as, um, you know, the confirmation of judges. Uh, so it's not without precedent, but I think it would be really hard because, you know, the filibuster gives individual senators a whole lot of power. So, uh, Bettina, with with your organization, what is your strategy right now? What 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 path forward do you see as the most likely and what are you doing to try to make that happen? Well, we have to, to be fair, we have co- we have uh, over 300 coalition members and we support all of the strategies that they are pursuing. Some of our partners are um, really putting pressure on President Biden and saying President Biden ordered the archivist to publish the Equal Rights Amendment immediately. Um, the president, President Biden has, you know, put out many statements saying he supports the Equal Rights Amendment. He has supported it for many decades, which is true. It's documented true. Um, documented true, um, but that he feels that Congress needs to take action. So we are working really hard to get Congress to take action. Um, Right now, the bills have been introduced with two sets of bills. Um, As Karen alluded to, there's also a bill that goes, it does similarly, it firms the ERA as part of the Constitution, but then takes the extra step of calling on the archivist, explicitly calling on the archivist to publish in the Constitution, and that's bill was uh, introduced by Congresswoman Cori Bush in the House and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand in the Senate. We're working really hard on the bill that has passed through Congress the past, um, in the House in the past two Congresses and that had a vote in the Senate this session, which was introduced by Congresswoman Ayanna Presley in the House as H.J. Res 25 and introduced by Senator Cardin with a lead uh, co-sponsor, Republican co-lead sponsor of Senator Murkowski. And right now to overcome what we know is the obstacle of not being in the majority, um, Ayanna Presley has filed a discharge petition, which I bet Karen could do some really great historical background about the linkage and importance of discharge petitions in the Equal Rights Amendment's history. The first time a discharge petition, or the first time the ERA was passed out of Congress was through a discharge petition. So there is a history of success for the ERA through discharge petitions. Not that this will be an easy, you know, 
an easy hurdle, but we are working really hard. We have 204 signers of the discharge petition. We need 218, so we only need 14 more members to sign on to that discharge petition. Of course, that will be the hardest 14 members, but we are working really hard. And we feel that if we can get this through the House and show how important it is um, through this procedural move that we can go back to the Senate and say, going back to politics, find the political will to make sure that this gets passed, even if through having to make a procedural move so that this is a 50 vote, um, only required with 50 votes. Uh, Bettina, but, yeah, we're we're yeah. nearly out of time, but thank you so much for talking with us today and uh, for sharing your strategies. Oh, yes, sorry. Um, yes, of course. <laughs> Bettina Hager is Chief of Policy and Programs with the ERA Coalition and the Fund for Women's Equality. And Karen Kodrowski, we've only got less than a minute left. And I, you have been educating people about the ERA and many other things. 80% of people already think that gender equality is explicitly in the Constitution, which... Yes, it, and they're wrong. It is not. It is not. You are, you are not. doing your best to uh, educate right. Iowans and educate all of us about this, so, including a, a uh, curriculum that you've written yes, for Iowa so high school let students. Let me point to some resources. Thanks, Charity. Um, on the, the CAT Center website under our education tab, we have a five-lesson curriculum that is designed for uh, K-12 teachers to use with their students. It could be used, be used by anybody in the in the country uh, because it's not only focused on Iowa. There's just one lesson about Iowa. Um, also, the most recent issue of the Annals of Iowa, which is published by the State Historical Society, has an article that I wrote about the Iowa story in considerable detail. Um, and then I have also published in East Wing magazine which is an online publication about first ladies, about how all the first, you know, to what degree all the first ladies have been involved in um, the ERA, either as supporters or opponents. We are out of time. Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State (laughs) University. Thank you. Thank you.